This is KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Tuesday, January 31st of 2023. I'm your host today, Stacy Johnson. Coming up on the program, a public health professor shares how research is showing the value of early and evidence-based sex education. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, we'll hear about an after-school cultural development program by the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in Toyok. And it's being called an environmental nightmare, but the perpetrators may never be caught. That story and more on This Week in Water. At the bottom of the hour, we'll have an update from the BBC News headlines. Then it's How on Earth. Today's science show is part two of a special about the James Webb Space Telescope. At 9 a.m. comes another archival recording of British philosopher Alan Watts. Then at 9.30, Sam Fuqua will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. And that's still ahead, but first, it's time for headlines with KGNU's John Kellen. It's still bitterly cold across the northern front range this morning, but temperatures could reach a high near 30 degrees later in the day. Yesterday's temperatures plunged to a low of 12 degrees below zero with wind chill factored in, according to the National Weather Service. Meteorologists say this is one of the coldest and snowiest Januarys on record. There's been just over 12 inches of snow this month, nearly twice the usual average. The weather yesterday contributed to more than 500 flight delays at Denver International Airport and more than 200 cancellations, according to FlightAware.com. Interstate 70 reopened to traffic late last night following two separate accidents that closed lanes in both directions throughout the day. KG News' Alyssa Palazzo has more. The accidents closed eastbound and westbound lanes between Dotsero and West Glenwood Springs and westbound lanes between Silverthorne and Loveland. The first accident involved a semi-truck which ended up on its side, with its trailer blocking westbound interstate westbound lanes, while its tractor unit hung over the guardrail, blocking eastbound lanes. Colorado State Patrol told the Denver Post the truck driver was not injured. The alternate routes suggested by the Colorado Department of Transportation, or CDOT, added several hours of travel time on snow-packed and icy roads. Another crash near the Eisenhower Tunnel closed a second portion of the interstate yesterday between Loveland and Silverthorne. CDOT encouraged drivers to stay put as they cleared the roads yesterday and urged motorists to gather information about potentially hazardous weather conditions before returning to the roads. For KGNU, I'm Alyssa Palazzo. Six out of seven western states have reached a tentative deal on Colorado River water use ahead of a federal deadline. California is the only state that hasn't agreed to the water use model. They're expected to release their own plan ahead of the February 1st deadline. One of the former Clear Creek deputies indicted in the killing of a Boulder man last summer is asking for the dismissal of charges. A lawyer representing former Sergeant Kyle Gould says there isn't enough evidence to charge him with negligent homicide and reckless endangerment. Gould was off duty at the time of the killing, but authorized officers on the scene to use force to get Christian Glass out of his car. Glass, who was 22 years old, called 911 after crashing his car in Silver Plume. He reportedly experienced a mental health crisis and refused to get out of his car after deputies reached the scene. Prosecutors say the deputies called former Sergeant Gould, who authorized them to force Glass from the vehicle. When they did, Glass allegedly swung a knife at them. That's when former Deputy Andrew Boone fatally shot him. In November, a grand jury found that Glass acted in self-defense. Former Deputy Boone is charged with second-degree murder, official misconduct, and reckless endangerment. 
Boone and Gould were both fired after their indictment. The Regional Transportation District is considering rules changes that would keep people from riding its system unless they have a specific destination. Steve Miller has more. Denverite reports that RTD may change its rules soon to prevent people from riding for an infinite amount of time. Other changes include what RTD calls undesirable behaviors, such as smoking, riding without paying, and putting one's feet on a seat. The possible changes are part of an effort to make using RTD buses, trains, and stations safer and to increase ridership, which dropped sharply during the pandemic. Currently, ridership is around 60% of pre-pandemic levels, but the rule changes are being criticized by at least one RTD board member, as well as the American Civil Liberties Union. These critics say that proposed changes are too broad and unfairly target unhoused people. Rules are enforced by RTD's own police force and contracted security. First-time violators are given a warning. Chronic offenders can lead to a permanent suspension from RTD's system and eventually criminal prosecution. The RTD Board of Directors will meet in February to decide whether to approve the proposed rule changes. For KGNU, I'm Steve Miller. Two bills to support Colorado workers have made their way through state house committees. House Bill 231094 boosts pay for agricultural workers, while House Bill 231072 ensures emergency response workers are compensated for time working a disaster. The Rood Recreation Center in Denver is serving the public as a rec center again. The center was one of several used for emergency housing to shelter some of the more than 4,000 migrants who began arriving in Denver in early December. Earlier this month, the number of migrants coming to Denver began to decline. Mayor Michael Hancock ordered the city to decommission the Rood Center and a second rec center as emergency shelters. Now, after maintenance and cleaning, the Rood Rec Center is open on normal business hours Monday through Saturday, but will be closed on Sundays until further notice. The U.S. Postal Service is hosting two career fairs in the Denver area this week to hire for rural and metro area carrier services. The first one is tomorrow, February 1st, at the Jefferson County Workforce Center in Golden. The second will be on Thursday in Adams County. Pay ranges are between $19.33 and nearly $25 an hour and include paid time off and health care benefits. In the weather for this last day of January, look for sunny skies in Boulder and Denver with a high temperature around 29 degrees. In Fort Collins, clear but a little cooler with a high of 24 degrees. For KGNU, I'm John Kellen. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Stacy Johnson. While 30 states, including the District of Columbia, mandate some form of sex education, only 11 of those require it to be medically accurate. Another 30 states demand that schools stress abstinence despite years or research showing that this approach can lead to higher rates of sexual assault, sexually transmitted infections, and teen pregnancy. While Colorado law does require educators to teach medically accurate information or stress abstinence, the choice of whether or not to include sex ed at all is up to local school districts. KGNU's Alexis Kenyon spoke with Dr. Eva Goldfarb, a professor of public health at Montclair State University, who studies K-12 sex education, to discuss what happens when kids don't get accurate or enough information about sex. So to 
start, I think that I was, I was most surprised to learn from your research that so many states don't require sex ed to be factually accurate. What's the risk of this type of inaccurate education? So one of the most powerful and effective tools in the public health arsenal to promote sexual and reproductive health is high-quality, evidence-informed, school-based sex education. And when we don't provide that for young people, we're putting children at greater risk for sexual abuse and sexual exploitation, um, for bullying and harassment, specifically around homophobic bullying and harassment. Young people feel less safe in schools. They're less able to maintain healthy relationships. They lack the media literacy skills, which today is so important. And then if, if you're the only child that even if your family does a good job of teaching you sex education, living in a world that is sexually ignorant and without those skills and knowledge is still going to be harmful to you. So look at the programs that have been funded by our government for the past couple of decades that are abstinence-only until marriage programs, which, by the way, have been rebranded recently as sexual risk avoidance. They tend to promote very rigid traditional gender roles that say boys will be boys and we can't control their sexuality, but girls and young women are the moral arbiters of sex and are the gatekeepers and are responsible to keep their legs closed to stay pure. And they use all kinds of really scary, uh, scare tactics and are very stigmatizing, both for young people who do have sex, which is the vast majority of people in the United States had sex before they're married, and for people who are completely excluded, which is anyone who is not heterosexual or not in a heterosexual marriage, because they teach that the only acceptable standard of sex is within the context of a heterosexual marriage. So it is very harmful. Um, and does not, by the way, help at all um, with pregnancy prevention or STI prevention. And statistically, the average age of first intercourse in the United States is about age 17. So the science has been really clear about that for a long time. And yet there are a number of states that still rely on that. In fact, I think the number is like 30 30 states say that when sex ed is taught, it must stress Abstinence. Abstinence. Hmm. You know, I think that a lot of parents and even adults that have education about the importance of sex ed or feel relatively progressive about it, they still struggle to understand what is an appropriate tone, you know, that isn't egregious, but also isn't overly moralistic. What would you recommend? Yeah, it's amazing to me that parents who are so confident and comfortable talking with their children about a whole range of challenging topics just fall apart or freeze when it comes to the topic of sex and sexuality. And I think that's a reflection of how most of us were raised and the very poor information that we were and education that we were given as young people. Um, we live in a world where sex is so taboo. I mean, I think we need to approach it exactly the way we approach everything else. Um, sex education, it's really about helping young people to stay safe, to protect themselves, to be able to enter into healthy relationships, 
to improve their communication skills, to reduce their risk of either being bullied or harassed or being a bullier or harasser, sexual harasser, and gives young people skills to navigate their way through their lives. So the recent research that I did with my colleague that looked at the past 30 years of peer-reviewed published research on sex ed says that what we know is that good comprehensive sex education that starts early does so much more than just reduce pregnancy and STIs, although that's an important component as well. When you say starts early, how early are we talking about? In kindergarten, that's what the research is telling us. So for example, just like we would never suggest introducing math for the first time with eighth grade algebra, the same is true for sex education. So things that are already taught in elementary schools that are not controversial are important foundational concepts. So such as everyone gets to have control of their own bodies and gets to decide who hugs them and who doesn't hug them. You know, and if I tell you, I don't want you to hug me, you need to respect that. That sets the stage for later conversations in middle and high school around sexual consent, bodily integrity, bodily agency, conversations about or teaching about what makes a good friend, what is a good friendship, you know, someone who you like, who likes you just the way you are, who supports you, um, who you like being with, who you share, you know, values and similar tastes. Those set the stage for later, more challenging conversations about healthy sexual and romantic relationships. Teaching about every child is fine just the way they are. Every child deserves to be loved and treated with respect and dignity, and every child gets to be proud of their family, whatever their family looks like. That's important information that sets the stage for later, more complicated conversations around anti-bullying, efforts and sexual harassment. And so by doing this earlier on, and and also, by the way, the friendship conversation is really important for later um, helping young people to learn how to communicate in, in romantic and sexual relationships. And so you're setting the foundational concepts, which are not controversial and which have been taught in elementary schools for millennia yeah. or for years. Those are important so that they're more likely to be able to think critically about these issues, talk about these issues, and learn about them at, when they become more complicated um, in middle and high school. Dr. Eva Goldfarb is a professor of public health at Montclair State University. Dr. Goldfarb, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. Mountain Ute Tribe is hosting a series of workshops for Native children to reconnect with Ute culture. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD brings us this report.
At the Ute Mountain Ute Recreation Center in Toyak, Colorado, a handful of children are learning to make traditional skirts. You can do the front and back. You can do applique on it where you can sew on like different patterns on top of your ribbons. Juanita Plentyholes is the program director for Tiwahe and Project Peak, a well-being program for tribal families and kids. Um, we're hoping that by attending these classes, it'll engage the kids to learn more and staying on top of their studies, so where they have an increase in school attendance as well as an increase in graduation rates. A few relatives sit close by while the kids work the sewing machines. Juanita Plentyhole says this is an important part of the program too. There's a disconnect between the younger generation and the older generations, and this way we're trying to bridge the two together. The kids stitch together fabrics and colorful ribbons. Jadalyn Perseliano and Wayne Adams are cousins. I wanted to learn how to make a skirt and make one on my own. I like to sew and because my auntie and my uncle are here with me to help me. So when you finish your skirt, when do you think you'll be wearing it? At a powwow or a bear dance, sun dance. The workshop is funded through a grant from the Colorado Department of Education. Project Peak includes a number of fashion workshops, as well as workshops that focus on healthy food and outdoor activities. It was pretty cool to give the students an opportunity to look at all the fabric and ribbon. Kelly Holmes is a Cheyenne River Lakota woman who lives in Denver. She's the founder and editor of Native Max Magazine, a fashion publication. Earlier in January, she taught a ribbon skirt workshop in Toyok as part of Project Peak. I brought down different colors of material, fabric and ribbons. Some of the girls even just could not wait till after school. They would come straight to our class and they would say, oh, I'm so happy and excited to be here. Kelly Holmes has been in the fashion world for well over a decade. I was discovered as a model when I was 16 years old here in Denver. When I did my first photo shoots and fashion shows, I was super scared. I was shy at the time, very antisocial, but it really opened my eyes up to building up my confidence. With these workshops, she hopes that she can show young Native kids that there's a way to fuse together fashion with cultural identity. Kind of talk a little bit about fashion as a way of expressing ourselves, how you can incorporate your culture and your heritage into fashion. Project Peak hosts a shawl-making class from January 30 through February 2 at the Ute Mountain Ute Recreation Center in Toyak. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KGNU. Up next, This Week in Water, with Jamie Sudler and Franny Halperin. How to help poor countries protect nature. That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. The Biden administration acted last week to preserve rivers, lakes, and forests in northeastern Minnesota that have been threatened by copper and nickel mining. More than 225,000 acres of the Superior National Forest will now be protected from mining for at least 20 years. The ban includes the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, the most heavily visited wilderness area in the U.S. The region is described as a paradise of woods and water 
and a world-class outdoor destination serving as an economic engine for hundreds of businesses and thousands of people. The administration said that it was responding to concerns about potential impacts to fish, wildlife, the rights of tribes, and the robust recreation economy. Some Republicans criticized the administration, saying that the minerals are needed for renewable energy and electric vehicles, yet at the same time, Biden is advancing projects in countries like Congo where child labor has been used in cobalt mines. Biden's protection of the Boundary Waters is a return to an Obama-era policy that had killed a nearby copper and nickel mine, which former President Trump then revived. It's being called an environmental nightmare. Tiny plastic pellets the size of lentils have been washing up on beaches in France and Spain over the past two months as winter winds and water currents drag the pollution on shore. Technically known as industrial plastic granules, the beads are melted and then shaped into common products. But during their manufacture and transport, as many as 10 trillion of the pellets escape into waterways every year. Collecting them is tedious, as volunteers with the Surfrider Foundation Europe found recently while trying in vain to sift them out of beach sand before they could be mistaken as food by marine life. It's nearly impossible to say where the beads came from, but many environmental groups suspect shipping containers that fell into the ocean. Lacking the ability to name a guilty party is not stopping several mayors in the affected regions, along with the French government, from taking legal action last week against the unknown perpetrators, conceding the move may be more symbolic than fruitful. We may never be able to pinpoint the source of the pellets in the ocean, but since they're ingested by fish we eat, we do know where they'll end up on dinner plates. In cold weather, people use layers of clothing to keep warm and then peel them off when it gets too hot. Now researchers at the University of Chicago have applied the same concept to buildings. They've designed a multi-layered material that contains copper particles that can change from a solid that retains warmth to a watery state that emits heat. When conditions are cold, copper, which is good at absorbing heat, is deposited on a film layer to retain that warmth. Using a small amount of electricity that's a fraction of what's currently used to maintain temperatures in buildings, the material can then shed the copper particles to reflect sunlight and keep a building cool. Their concept could greatly increase the efficiency of buildings, which consume about 40% of global energy and are responsible for about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, with indoor heating and cooling being a major contributor. The researchers imagine that their material could be assembled like shingles into large sheets, the watery phase is transparent and any color could be put behind it without affecting its heat absorption properties. They also show how the material could cut energy costs of buildings in 15 U.S. cities, saving almost 8.5% of their annual energy consumption. And finally, Cape Verde, or officially the Republic of Cabo Verde, is an island nation off the west coast of Africa known as a global hotspot for marine biodiversity. But the ocean that has sustained livelihoods and supported tourism is now threatening the country's existence as sea levels rise and fish populations decline from increasing ocean acidity. Add to that, the archipelago is sinking in debt. 
much of it owed to its former colonizer, Portugal. So it was welcome news this week that the Portuguese government agreed to forgive a portion of that debt in exchange for Cape Verde protecting its environment. The move is part of a growing trend of debt-for-nature deals where countries often in the global south and poor economically but rich in biodiversity swap their burden with wealthier nations that are trying to meet promised climate targets. The swaps aren't new. Bolivia, Costa Rica, and Belize made debt-for-nature agreements in the 1980s where funds were used to establish parks, conserve ecosystems, and even do research into medicinal uses of tropical plants. Reuters reported last week that Zambia is considering a debt-for-nature swap proposal for from the World Wildlife Fund, the African nation known for its famous Victoria Falls is increasingly threatened by deforestation and climate change. That's it for This Week in Water, which is sponsored today by our contributary, 15-year-old Braden Cronin of Colorado. Braden said, I donated to H2O Radio because they tell interesting stories, don't lie, and keep me wanting more. Thanks for listening, Braden. See you next week. That's it for today's Morning Magazine. Thanks to John Kellen, Steve Miller, Alyssa Palazzo, Alexis Kenyon, Clark Adamitis, Shannon Young, Jamie Sudler, and Franny Helprin for their contributions to today's program. I've been your host, Stacey Johnson. Stay tuned for How on Earth that's coming up after the news headlines from the BBC.